Welcome to SLP Money, an in-depth conversation for speech, language pathologists, and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial advisor and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com. Hello, SLP Nation, and welcome to another episode of the SLP Money Podcast. Today, I'd like to welcome Lana Fox, who is the CEO of Clinic Note, a full suite electronic medical record that helps therapists streamline their mandatory documentation, reporting, and billing. Her background in industrial design equips her to understand the needs of customers across the nation to help implement solutions. She loves talking with her therapists who are passionate about the industry and transforming their ideas into a reality. She lives in Des Moines, Iowa with her husband, daughter, and cat. And with that introduction, Lana, welcome to the SLP Money Podcast. Thanks, Craig. Happy to be here. So I'm really excited for our conversation today because you can provide such a wonderful perspective as someone who's reached the level of CEO without having an MBA or a business degree. So when I've given presentations to SLPs around the country, if I ask a room, let's say, of 100 SLPs to raise their hand if they've ever taken a business class, I'm always lucky if I see one hand go up. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background and how someone who has a degree in industrial design ended up as a CEO of a company. So our story, I would have started back in, see, 2010 when I met my now husband, which is kind of funny. It starts there, but... We started as friends, ended up dating, and he started Clinic Note with a couple of his friends in 2015. He had this idea and wrote out a business plan, applied to the Global Insurance Accelerator in Des Moines, and then they were supposed to be a kind of not a practice company, but kind of an honorary student company because they were still going to Iowa State for various engineering degrees. And so they applied, the, the application team accepted them into the program, and then like a day before the program, they got the, the full money. And then they paused school and they put their master's on hold, and through the Global Insurance Accelerator, they got, they got their first angel investors and raised, raised a small round of funding from them and had... I think by August, we had our first speech, private practice speech therapist using Clinic Note. It was a very rudimentary product at that point. And I know that this doesn't necessarily seem like, okay, well, how did did you get into the CEO role? Well, Tyler and I had been dating and, and they really needed sales. So kind of during that same time of them going through this process, I was running an exterior painting business while going to Iowa State. And that's where I learned all of my hands-on business learning experience because I'm such a hands-on learner. And then 2017, no, 2016, I joined the company as just like a salesperson and a customer discovery person. And because of my design background and the fact that I just really love people and hearing everyone's stories and in sales, I think you do the best if you listen. So that's kind of the roundabout way where I joined the team as the the salesperson. That's such a fascinating story. So you do indirectly then have a business background. Share with me a little bit more about that. You mentioned it's an exterior painting company. So that's where you kind of learned your business 101. Yeah, it was a franchise and I ran that for three years and they had classes and like sales classes and business classes. But 
in a sense of like as so at the very beginning of the year we'd have to learn okay let's how do, how do you get your first sale how do you cold call so i'd like knock on doors outside in the cold while it was still winter because i live in iowa and try to get people to do an, a free painting estimate with me the original cold calling if you will and cold knocking door to door that's it's amazing and as i speak with slps as they launch businesses or try and grow their private practices oftentimes they ask, well, how do I get more clients? How do I acquire more people? And this is such a wonderful story of, you know, you don't have to have the fancy websites and the online marketing. Sometimes you do just go door to door and you, for an SLP, you go and you go to the school district or you go to the hospital, you try and talk to these directors and you literally knock on their door or pick up the phone and try and reach out to them proactively. Right. In the worst case, someone says, no, they're not interested. And that's fine. Part of it is educating people on what services you can provide and how you can benefit them in some way. And that's part of finding those pain points, which I'm, I'm excited to hear about all the work that you're doing with Clinic Note. And I know that's one of your key tenants about figuring out from user feedback, some things that they'd like to see helping their private practices, right? Because on your website, you do such a great job of telling the background story of Clinic Note and once you're a private practice owner, you only have a limited bandwidth of time during your day. You're going to meetings, you're marketing, you're wearing all these different hats as a business owner. So you need to try and find some of these organizational efficiencies. So share with us a little bit about the principles behind Clinic Note and why you got started and how you found some of these efficiencies to try and improve the operations of private practice owners. So when I joined the team in 2016, the initial founders had a basic understanding of what needed to be in the electronic medical record in Clinic Note. But what I did that in 2016 was just lots of customer discovery calls, hundreds and hundreds of calls to see what are your needs as a private practice owner? What are your struggles? What things are going really well and you don't need help with? And what are things that need to be more efficient for you and are wasting the most amount of your time? So that sounds like it was really important that, again, we talked about cold calling, but then just getting to know your customers, having the specialization, was it set out to be a product for just SLPs or was it for therapists altogether? Yeah, it was supposed to be just for SLPs. And then, let's see, 2017, we expanded to university programs because we found that that was just a super underserved market. And then really just this past fall, or sorry, past spring with COVID, we, I think as a company, you always have to learn and grow as outside things occur. Like nobody knew that COVID was going to happen this year, had that prediction and it was kind of blindsiding. But as a business owner, you always have to morph into the kind of company that's needed for that present time. So we had a research project happening this past spring, and now we're expanding into some other disciplines. I know in 2017, Lana, you decided to pivot the company. So you still work with private practitioners, but you had this foresight that you really wanted to engage the larger institutional relationships. Share with us a little bit about why you decided to go after those larger institutions and maybe some of the success that you've had so far. So we... So we... We were out of money again <laughs> as a company. We were kind of, we were starting to like not have enough money and I just needed to try to make money somehow. So I went to the Capsid conference, which is the Beach University Clinic Director Conference. And I had a, an inkling that there was a need in the university market, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. So I went, I pay or 
I called, or what did I do? I think I emailed someone at the conference or a private practice owner kind of gave me an introduction to that conference somehow. And um, they were really receptive. They said, yeah, just come check out the conference. You can talk to some of the people here and see if there's some kind of a need. And on the conference floor, I got my first university, my first university customer. And that was in 2017 in April, I think. And then I got one additional university customer in August of that year. And so in 2017, we had two universities and this year we should get close to 50. But what's been really cool is that universities pay upfront and it's been really helpful for my business to have that cash at hand so that I can do the development that private practice people have been requesting over and over and over again. But because my private practice people were one and two person clinics, uh, it, I just didn't have enough money to build the features that everyone was wanting. If I could have had a hundred people say, okay, Lana, we're going to go with you. And then I can use that money to, to build the features that they were requesting, but development costs money and it takes time. And so I needed to find a way to get money in the door and, you know, be able to build the things that people were requesting. So it's really cool to be with in partnership with universities because now that cash coming in the door is helping to build the features that not only universities need, but private practice people need. And I'll be able to help more people now by just coming at it in a different angle than I had initially intended. So to recap, you knew about this conference and you dialed up a big dose of courage, went to this conference with little to no expectations, somehow struck up conversation with a clinical director, loved what you had to say, they hired your company, and then you found one other company. And that was over the course of 12 months, 2017. And over the last few years now, you've grown that, I don't even know what the percentage is, by a thousand X, you went from two to 50 customers. And so all of a sudden, over time that you've ramped up and you've grown. So we've talked about it where you have, and that's such a key lesson too for people to take away that the, the key to the university customers that they paid cash to help fund other activities that the business is looking to do. Private practitioners, you have similar big ticket customers, whether it's a school district yeah. or a hospital-based system. You can reach out and connect to these people and depending on your services, depending, you mentioned earlier, having a professional presence and coming across that your business is professionally run and operates that well, well, somebody might give you a shot just like they gave Lana on the, on the floor of a conference center. You never know what's going to happen when you reach out to people either through cold emails or picking up the phone or back to knocking on doors in snowy Iowa. You never really know what's going to happen. So yeah. it does take courage. So that should not be overlooked, but certainly something that the risk of failure is certainly trumped by the benefits and the rewards of the success. Yeah. And when I went to that conference, it was kind of like a, oh, we'll just see if there's any kind of need there. I didn't have an expectation of, oh, I'm going to go there and I'm going to get 10 customers. That wasn't realistic for where we were at in the business. It was more of a, is there a need? And if there's a need, okay, then, then let's figure out how we can help these people. It's just so incredible, right? You go into it with the expectations. Yes, I'm going to a speech university clinical director conference. So it's my target market. It's my target audience. But 
you went and if nothing worked, then you would have found another conference and you would have tried something else and pivoted the business maybe back to private practice or another conference. So mm-hmm. keep your ears and eyes open for these opportunities that exist in your local community, in your county. There's so many people looking for the services in which these, you, the clinician, provide that you just got to put yourself in the right situation. And there's an old adage in the business world that showing up is 50% of the battle. So if you're in the right place, you've got a 50-50 shot, somebody saying yes or somebody saying no. So position yourself by going where the targets that you want to work with reside. And how big is the team right now at Clinic Note? We have three full-time and then a development team outside of us. So another two or three developers. That's so important. And a lot of the listeners in our audience know as small business owners, that's a huge advantage by being so lean and nimble that when something like coronavirus happens, you can pivot on a dime and implement teletherapy practices. Or maybe you have an example of something that your team, by being three to six employees, was able to do that a larger team has to have more protocols, more when things change. Yeah, it's it's definitely easier to make a decision quickly and then just go with it. And another thing, so we have investors. We have raised money. We have investors, angel investors that have helped us. And what's really nice about having investors is they have years and years of experience with how to grow a company and do it efficiently. And they help me to understand, okay, Lana, what's your future plan like 10 years down the road and how are we going to get there? Do you have enough money to do that? Because we have been a very lean, lean company, but we've done that in a very strategic way. Totally. And it's, it's so amazing to me that yes, you had the entrepreneurial background of your painting company, but we're throwing out some terms that I just want to clarify a few things for the audience listening that when we're talking about angel investors and seeding money that in the technology world, it's very common for someone to come in that has an experience and a background where if you're familiar with Shark Tank, a show like that, where an investor comes in and writes you a check for some equity in their business, that's an example of what an angel investor would do that Someone sees Lana's company, they see Clinic Note performing well with this great growth potential. And instead of the company having to take on their own debt or finance it through a loan through their own bank, put up their own collateral, they have these angel investors, sometimes it's referred to as seed money, come into the company and help foster some of this growth. So I'm really curious to hear, how did you establish some of these connections with some of these angel investors and how did you get in contact with them? So we got our first angel investors in the Global Insurance Accelerator, which listeners be familiar with accelerator programs. It's possible. I haven't. So I'd love to know more about it. So uh, accelerator programs is a space for different types of companies to go and get mentorship. And sometimes they'll also get some money, some initial money from the accelerators. So if you just Googled accelerator program, many would come up. And there are accelerators in different industries. We thought initially that we were going to get big data and be able to give it back to the insurance companies and help the therapists get paid quicker. And the insurance companies would then get more data on what, just in general, what types of claims would be coming back from their clients. Well, what we found out after going through that program is that we would have to have a ton, a ton, a ton of customers to really get them that information. So I think the fact that the the guys were at Iowa State and the program was new that first year, we were in the first class. So we got accepted in and lucky for us, 
now the companies they accept are much further along than we were at that point because it was kind of just an idea. Whereas now a lot of the companies are valued at, gosh, a hundred million dollars or something, a lot, or a million dollars at least, maybe not a hundred, but. Um, some record of sales, some track record of history. This, isn't, this, this wasn't three guys brainstorming an idea and being fortunate <laughs> to come into some capital. Exactly. Yeah. So that was where we first got our mentors. That's where we gained trust with some people who did have money and they became our first angel investors. And luckily when I came on the team, I was able to gain their trust and they reinvested in us at the end of 2016. And by us, I mean me, because at that time my husband went and got another job so he could support us. And I started running the company and the initial two founders, they had left between late 2015 and early 2016, just because they wanted, well, one went into the Navy and the other one got, you know, a different job where he was making more money because it is hard to start a company and it's hard to have money when you're only making $60 a month from your first client. Like that's hard. You can't really live on that. So you have to find some way to support the business and support you because for you to have mental base and confidence and mental health. It's really important that you have something or someone supporting you, or maybe you saved up and you, you had some cash to live on. I think when, you know, a lot of SLPs don't consider themselves salespeople, right? They're good hearted, they're nature, they love helping others. But at the end of the day, when you do open a clinic, you have to put your businesswoman hat on or businessman hat on. And it does require you to bring in revenues because this is, well, you do need to earn a living and you do need to eventually make a profit, like you're mentioning, mm -hmm. to support your family and yourself. And I think you hit on something really important of having a spouse that has maybe stability in their occupation, which can free these clinicians up if they want to go the route of private practitioner, because the road is not linear. It is not something where all of a sudden, Lana shared, you shared such an excellent example of knocking on doors and you have no idea if people will say yes or if they will say no, but having this financial backstop of a working spouse or some other form, maybe it's savings in the bank that can get you through the first few months or first few years and having that financial backstop to really grow the business the way you want to grow it. Because we often know that it's the first customer is always the hardest to get. And then you get another one and you get another one and then people start to know about your name and who you are how you represent yourself in the community. So it sort of snowballs positively, but you do have to get going and get started. So I appreciate you sharing that story about your own family. Yeah, because we didn't have the luxury of having jobs for 10 or 15 years before. We didn't have any savings. We had just graduated from school and yeah, just didn't have anything. Money was really tight and it continued to be really tight for a couple of years. And I feel like now five years in, we finally, like I've been drawing a salary we have a customer base that can support the salaries. It's not like we just raise money and we're living on money that we raise from investors or loans, which I think that's really important for people to understand. Like it's not necessarily going to have a profit right away and that's okay. As long as you are keeping track of, okay, when am I projecting to make a profit and am I staying on track to those goals to make that a reality? Or do I need to adjust when I'm probably going to hit, that profit uh, mark. And if it's going to be longer, if you don't have enough money in the bank to sustain you until that time, then that's when you need to go and look for some kind of investment or loan or something to help you get through. 
Yeah, I think that's such a great point because every clinician that's listening to us today have this conversation. They all bet on themselves in some way by going to get an undergraduate degree, a master's degree. And if you couldn't pay for it out of cash, which a lot of people don't, you take a loan. And so the lender is going to make a bet on you that you're going to get a career, you're going to earn an income, and you're going to earn a salary. So you do pay off the loan over time. Once you put the business person hat on, then all of a sudden you may need to finance the growth of the business. So I think what you're saying is so critical and your husband and his peers went through that experiment when they put the original business plan together, they had that five-year growth rate. And by having that five-year projection, that doesn't mean year one is going to be smooth, year two will not be smooth, but you have those expectations and you get all these learning experience, whether it's door-to-door knocking or building on existing relationships maybe you have with your previous clinician or the previous setting that you worked in. And I think you touched on something so important, mentorship. So you guys were fortunate to have mentors through the accelerator program and share with us a little bit how impactful it is to have mentorship and have the support of professionals who've maybe not necessarily gone through building an EMR system or a private practice, but just business experience to show you what it's like to start from ground zero and build your way up. It has been instrumental having mentorship and having mentors that not only care about my business, but that care about me as a person, because it makes a difference when someone is invested in you as a person as well, because they're not just out to make money and do it in whatever scrappy way they possibly can. Instead, they're invested in you as a person and they care about seeing you succeed and making sure that you really trust a person prior to sharing a lot of your financial information is going to be really important. But once you do have that trusted relationship, it's so nice when you hit a roadblock and you're like, Oh, I just don't seem, I can't think of any way out of this. When you have mentors to lean on, you get different opinions. And yes, sometimes that can establish a mentor whiplash a little bit. So I talk about mentor whiplash in the sense of one of my investors might say, Oh, Lana, you need to do this. And the other investor might have a really like completely different idea to go forward with. But what I've always done is either take both and just run with both ideas at the same time or explain the reasoning as to why you picked one mentor's idea over the other, because you as the business owner know your business the very best. And it's important that you are confident in yourself and the research and the work that you've put in and trust your gut because you've put in the work. And while you're putting in the work, you can't really fail if you're putting in work as long as you're making moves forward and not being stuck. That's such a great topic to dive deeper in about when people can get stuck. It's hard to get unstuck sometimes and you can find yourself spiraling or just stalling out and not progressing. Now that you have the experience of several years running the company, any tips or strategies on how to maybe recognize that you are in this sort of holding pattern and anything you can recommend on how to get unstuck? Sometimes it's making a list of the, like, let's say there's this big event coming, or maybe um, you have this huge, big, hairy, audacious goal is what I call them. Um, If you have something like that, where it seems like there's a hundred steps that need to happen before you can get to that goal, it's really important that you write it out and break it up into smaller, attainable items. So for example, let's say we have this big billing update that we've been working on and people have been requesting for a really long time. I will break that up into chunks of, okay, well, how are the invoices going to look? 
what do I need to learn about invoicing so that it can work for a variety of different clinics? Or really breaking it down into smaller attainable action items is just, I'd say, the most important thing. Yeah, that's such a great thing. And some of the reading that I've done on my own, I believe a lot of people in today's world call those micro actions. Everyone we know, every SLP we know loves checklists. So when you get the checklist going and it's a lot easier to check off a bunch of small wins and get that positive momentum going, which is a real thing, as opposed to I have this one overarching goal, like you're saying, whether it's a redesign or updating software, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things. But as you move through the list and you check off those boxes and you know you're closer to that goal, really empowering to just continue pushing forward and and getting that positive momentum. So you don't feel like you're stuck because you might not really be stuck, but sometimes we live in our own heads and it can feel like you're stuck. So getting that momentum really, really important. 100%. So I want to take, go back a little in time. So you, so you shared with us about the beginning of clinic note. And then when you became CEO in 2017, you mentioned that you have There's three full-time in-house staff members and you went through a hiring process. It seems like you've added a staff person each year. When I speak with private practitioners, they often say to me, Craig, how do I know when it's time to hire someone? Maybe it's a front office person. Maybe it's a lead therapist, just someone to help support me because I am growing caseload, but I can no longer do everything on my own. How did you recognize that it was time for Clinic Note to actually have additional employees besides yourself? Two parts. The first is your financial, like your bottom line tells you that you can afford them. (laughs) That's number one. Number two is when you're working, it's really probably pretty normal for people who work over 40 hours as a business owner, over 60 hours as a business owner, but higher, you know, it just depends kind of where you're at in the company. But when you get to a point when you can't get things done and people are waiting on you to move forward, that's when you need to hire someone. And sometimes your bottom line will tell you that you can afford them. And sometimes your bottom line will say, oh, you can't do that yet. (laughs) And if that's the case, something that I did at the very beginning in 2017, when we had not very much money and we had a lot of development that we needed to do, I created processes. I wrote down and tried to document my processes as much as possible to get rid of the wiggle room of things that I was wasting my time, like repetitive tasks that you find yourself doing over and over and over again. If you can figure out a way to, um, like if you have the same email that you send to all of your newest clients, or if you have like a process that you're explaining to your new clients every single time, write it out, figure out a way to make it look pretty. So when you share it, it looks professional because it's really important that your stuff looks really professional as a business owner figure out a way to document repetitive tasks and it'll be really important also then when you hire someone that you know your processes for getting through certain tasks of yours and then that's an easy way to say oh well I need a front desk person because I do this all the time and it takes me 20 hours a week and if I train them on it then they could they could be a super part-time person and maybe they don't start as a full-time person you as a business owner know what your time is worth. And if you can delegate and outsource, and it may not even like you're saying, it could be a part-time person. There's a lot of virtual assistants these days that can handle a lot of these redundancies and tasks that, yeah, it might take you some time to send emails or update processes. But if you can delegate that off to someone else and free up your bandwidth to do some creative thinking, or maybe in your example, Lana, when you're talking about updating this billing software, you need that creativity time. You need that 
ability, if you really want to grow the business, it can't just be the monotony of day in and day out if you want to take the business to the next level. So mm -hmm. those are great examples. And as all SLPs know, there are so many redundancies within tasks. And I know that's one of the principles we talked about earlier of clinic note and being able to streamline processes and have a system in place for your SOAP notes or complete your IEPs and just make sure that they're done and that they don't take three, four hours per update. Exactly. And another thing I'll just mention briefly on trying to look for people, students are always looking for internships. And maybe you don't go and hire a full-time person for 40 hours a week at $50,000. Maybe you find someone that's going to be an intern for you for a few months and you see if it's really helping you or if it's creating more work for you. And that's a really good way to help support uh, the younger generation, the people that are going to be coming out and learning to be in the workforce. Maybe you could find SLPs that are going to school and trying to figure out if they want to be in private practice or not. They're hard workers. They'll kind of know the industry. And I don't know, I think that's something that's not utilized enough. A lot of the clinicians that I, I meet, especially if they're you know, maybe baby boomers or Gen Xers, what a great resource to have a 22-year-old, 23-year-old come into your office. They all tell me, you know, I need to do better with my social media. I need to do better with my online presence and have resources like that. Well, the Gen Zs and the Gen Ys and the millennials, that's where they all live and they're experts in that. You might spend time on your own researching these latest techniques or hire industry consultants to come in and improve the business when you have people who are willing to learn your expertise in exchange for their expertise. And so there's so much synergy that can go on between these different generations and everyone has their strengths and their opportunities to improve. That's just such a great example. I'm happy you brought that up. Another thing I'll mention is sometimes your state will have, it's like we have the Iowa Economic Development Authority, and there are programs where if you hire people that are just about to graduate, you can get part of their salaries supplemented. So in your state, it's really important that you get creative on trying to figure out, oh, well, is there any way that I could supplement any part of your business? You can even Google, is there a grant for this type of business? or or that type of person that you're hiring or looking to hire. That's a wonderful recommendation. So I'm also curious to know, between your experience running a franchise and being an entrepreneur and now leading a company with the continued growth, what lessons have you learned or maybe some mistakes that you've experienced? If you had to go back in time, you would tell Lana from five years ago, you know, you don't need to spend as much time on this, or maybe I could have improved something else. Well, as a business owner, there's always things that you wish you would have known or done a little bit differently. Like it would have been amazing if we had a technical co-founder on our team. And it, this has probably been a struggle throughout my entire time of being a business owner. It's hard to know that your experience is good. Every experience that you go through is helpful and you learn something from it. I learned, I listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of YouTube people, business owners that are really, really successful, like multi-million dollar companies. And like one of my goals is to get a million dollars in reoccurring revenue because there aren't very many women led companies that get to that point. 
And so that's one of my goals. Broke that down because you don't expect to grow from over the next 12 months to get from wherever your sales are now to a million dollars. I mean, maybe you're at 995 right now. I don't know, but chances are you're not. And that's your goal, but you've broken down that into micro actions. So in order to get to a million, you first have to get to 900,000 and 800,000. And you probably have these milestones along the way that you're headed on the right trajectory. Exactly. And it's okay that it takes time. Like most companies fail within, what is it? The first year, three years. There are many more failures than successes in business. That, that's hundred percent accurate. And I think a lot of people are fearful of that, but with some of the conversation that we've had today and some of the steps that you can go, I really think one of the more important parts of our conversation thus far is what you mentioned about your personal story with your husband and having that financial backstop to just get started. One, it alleviates a lot of the pressure. To you know that you ha- you're giving yourself the runway to be successful because it takes time to build these relationships for people to know that you're on your own, that you're acquiring your own clients and running a business. So that's all building on that five-year plan, 10-year plan. It's important to have the long-term vision, but then you break that up into these shorter feasible goals, weekly goals, monthly goals, quarterly goals, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think for the speech industry, for people who are trying to start a private practice, There are a lot of successful private practice owners throughout the country. And I think it's really important that you look to those stories, find some stories that you can connect with. Maybe you want to have a, maybe you just want to be a single practitioner and that's your dream and you want to work alone, or maybe you want to build your company to 50 speech therapists throughout, or you want to be a multidisciplinary clinic. There are other people who have come before you and have made it successfully work. So look at, for some of those examples and reach out to people. The worst thing they can do is not respond, but more likely than not, people are really responsive. And especially in the speech industry, that's one of my favorite things about speech therapists is you guys are all super nice people. You care about your clients. You care about um, your communities and your family. And so most likely if you reach out to a business owner of another speech clinic, you'll find that they'll respond to you and they'll help you a little bit. Now, I will say, if you reach out to them, realize they're busy people too. And it's important that you have your basic questions answered yourself and then go to them with more of the deeper questions. Maybe not like the high level, oh, how do I make my company an LLC or a corporation? You, could, you should research that a little bit yourself. But if you have, well, how did you grow from 10 clients to 100 or And also, I've also heard that for some therapists, it's try not to reach out to speech clinics that are in the same town as you. Go elsewhere into other cities to look for mentors because your private practice in the same town is probably like a competitor. So maybe you have a different niche and you can figure out a way to build rapport in that way with another clinic in town. But I have heard that it's nice if you go outside of your own Yeah. One of the reoccurring things that we've talked about with previous guests is the power of networking and establishing relationships, especially in today's social media world. There's so many ways to connect. This conversation started because I happened to listen. I know Lana was talking about, well, maybe there's a way to hear real stories of private practice owners. There's a wonderful additional podcast called Clinic Chats, which I suggest that you all download and listen to, but it's one of Lana's colleagues at clinic note, talking to real life practice owners about how they grow their businesses, their struggles, their pain points and opportunities that they see. And you mentioned that you're a hands-on learner. That's how I learn as well. So you, 
you always can learn things from other clinicians and you can always pick up wisdom from them. And I think it's just important to be proactive and reach out because I agree. One of the best things about working with speech pathologists and private practitioners is their generosity. People are very, very positive to respond. It is rare where someone either doesn't respond or says, no, I have no time. I honestly don't think that's ever happened to me when I've reached out to someone. So just, it takes some courage, but once you get that courage and you reach out, I believe you will be pleasantly surprised when you try and build some of these mentorships. One other note that I will add and why it's important to do that. So we've spent a lot of time today talking about starting the business, growing the business, but at some point, every practitioner will leave their business at some point. Lana will leave her business at some point. And so it's important to know in the back of your mind, we're talking about these 10, maybe 20 year goals. At some point, you do want to have some type of exit strategy and exit plan. So indirectly, by building some of these relationships with these experienced practitioners, you may indirectly start some conversation where maybe you join their practice with a long-term strategy to become their succession plan. The majority of practitioners you speak to don't have that exit plan or that succession plan in place. So maybe that's another strategy for you to get started. You don't have to start it from the ground up. Absolutely. And I wanted to mention when we talked about adding another team member and in general, trying to figure out when you should add someone else, something that I do while I'm just going through my day to day, if I have an idea, like I had this the idea for clinic chats, the podcast, that I did not have the bandwidth to do it, nor did I really think at that point in time, it was going to be a something that would help the growth right then and there, like with cold calling and sales, or like if you're knocking on doors or going into a school, I guess maybe it was a better example to try to get additional clients. For me, the podcast wasn't something that was going to get me users right away. I just wanted clinic or clinic chats to become a reality so that it could help people indirectly, whether they use our product or not. And as you grow, you can do more creative things. But something that I do kind of throughout running the company is as I come up with ideas, I put them on my list of backlog ideas so that when I do hire someone or when I do get more bandwidth, the next person that comes in, I can say, oh, I can look through my backlog and say, oh, this would be really, this would fit their personality, their skills. I'm going to have them do this idea that I had five years ago. As we head and wrap up our conversation today, I just want to thank you again, Lana. You know, most of our audience either owns a private practice, they aspire to own one, or they work as a 1099 contractor. So essentially they are a business owner, a sole proprietor. So hearing your experiences, your trials, your tribulations, and the growth strategies you've implemented is just, it's so empowering for a lot of our listeners. So I just want to thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thanks. Yeah. Happy to be here. And if anybody has additional questions for me, maybe not about clinic note, but about running a business, finding angel investors, learning how to raise money. I haven't necessarily gone to a bank to get a loan because Banks don't really understand software companies, but they do understand brick and mortar usually. And there are many private practice clinics that have raised money. So maybe I can just help you in some way. If any, if I can help you in any way, I'd love to help. Sure. What's the best way for people to contact you or get in touch with you? The best way would be Lana at clinicnote.com. L-A-N-A at clinicnote.com. Great. And then just before we wrap up, as longtime listeners of the show know, we always like to leave our guests with action items that you can help implement to grow your business. We're big fans of taking action. And so if you learned anything from today, hopefully you'll take some notes. I jotted a few down during our conversation. And 
number one, I think it has to be breaking down your big goals into smaller micro actions to really get that momentum so you avoid getting stuck. Number two, I would tell you to, as Lana mentioned, create processes in order to get to the next phase of your business with a hiring process, right? You have these redundant, repetitive tasks. So maybe it's a virtual assistant. Maybe it's a part-time person. Maybe it's a student looking for an externship or an internship. Utilize those resources, but have your tasks written out. That way you can send them to someone else and free up some of that bandwidth that we were talking about. And then number three, another great helpful hint that Lana gave us, look to your local communities, townships, municipalities, and counties to see if they're offering any grants or maybe they want, especially with coronavirus, still a rampant thing. Maybe they want to do some economic development and they want to have more jobs and they want to bring more resources into the community. See if they will give you grants to bring employees on or back. I know a lot of practitioners were using the PPP loans or the EIDL loans or the SBA. Maybe the local townships has some money still and they are looking to do that as well. So three things that you can really do immediately to help kickstart and grow your business. And any other parting notes, Lana, that you'd like to leave our listeners with? One other question that we asked that we didn't get to yet is from a financial perspective. What's the best piece of advice you ever received? Well, that's a loaded question because there are so many different aspects. Something I've learned in running a business is sometimes you have to spend money to make money. um, And that's okay as long as you see the point in time where you will be making money, making a return on that investment. Kind of like when you go to school, you spend money to go to school. However, you start making money the instant you get a job and it might take you a few years to make back that, you know, pay off your loans and that's okay. But um, you do have a plan, a set plan for making that money back. So just, it's okay to spend money as long as you have a plan and you're using that money wisely. Such wonderful advice. And on that note, we'll wrap up today. And again, Lana, thank you so much for joining us. And to all the listeners, we'll catch you on the next episode of SLP Money. You've been listening to SLP Money, hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? Head on over to the Learning Center at utterlyfinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening. Materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual and professional advice. Craig Goldsleiger is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and financial services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian, 
Utterly Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Craig Goldsteiger does not maintain specialized licenses or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech-language pathologists and private practice professionals. California Insurance License 0K78754-2020-10754. Expiration 08-2022.